Do you suppose it's going to make any difference? The woman asked her pastor as she left the worship service that day. What do you mean? He responded. Easter, she replied. Do you think that Easter is going to make any difference to all these people? Or will life tomorrow be the same as yesterday? My friends, that is a great question. Will Easter make any difference? Or will your life tomorrow be the same as it was yesterday? I confess to you, it is very tempting to be cynical when it comes to matters of faith. It is easy to become jaded towards the miraculous. But this morning, let it be known that the Easter event is the crux of Christianity. This is the crescendo of our faith. Everything about our Christian religion rises and falls on the events that took place on Easter weekend. I realize that if the tomb is not empty, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, this is the biggest hoax in human history. But if the tomb is empty, if Jesus is alive, then it makes a difference not only today and tomorrow, but for all of eternity. So this morning, I came to tell you that the tomb is empty. This morning, I want to speak to you about the implications of an empty tomb. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 1 to 20, as today we conclude our six-part sermon series simply entitled, What on Earth Are We Doing? And this morning, we will discover that we exist to make much of Jesus, for all of our mission is bound in the empty tomb. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 28, let's begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 20. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews even to this day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was early in the morning on the first day of the week when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus in order to give him a proper burial. It is Mark who tells us the question that's found on their minds, for they say one to the other, who will roll the stone away for us? In our preceding passage of Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that the chief priest went to the governor and said, while that deceiver was alive... He told his disciples that on the third day he would rise. You need to dispatch some of your best soldiers at least for three days so that no one can come and steal the body of Jesus. They'll come and take his body and then proclaim that he's been raised from the dead and that deception will be worse than the first. So Pontius Pilate ordered the soldiers to go to the tomb and to make it as secure as possible. No sooner had the ladies arrived onto the scene that they heard an angel from heaven descend. It was such a thunderous noise, I can only imagine the, the flapping force of the majestic wings as the angel came down and with ease rolled the stone away and sat on top of it. Matthew tells us that the angel's clothes were like lightning, his was bright as the snow. This caused the Roman soldiers to have an anxiety attack, and they were petrified. They passed out right there as dead men. And the angel declared to the women, don't you be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified, but he is not here. He is risen from the dead. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go and tell his disciples that he will meet them in Galilee. Now... I have told you. The angel came with a mighty message and a powerful object lesson. He came with an object lesson for he rolled the stone away. I want to tell you that he rolled the stone away not to get Jesus out of the grave, but to get the watching world into the grave. You see, Jesus was already raised from the dead. The angel didn't come and open the door as if Jesus wasn't able to get out yet. He was already resurrected, and the only reason the stone was rolled away is so that Mary and the other Mary and you and me and anyone else can come in and see that this Jesus who was crucified, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. So this Jesus who was dead is alive again. The angel came with an object lesson. The angel came with a mighty message. Have you ever noticed that whenever the invitation is given to come and see, it's always followed by go and tell? Whenever the invitation is given, come and see, it is always followed by go and tell. It is never an invitation that says come and see and stay and be silent. 
It's never a limitation that says, come and see and ponder for a while. It's never a limitation that says, come and see and form a committee to evaluate whether it actually took place. No, it's come and see and then go and tell. Because the invitation to come and see always propels us to go and tell. This is a story of obedience. For the angel was obedient to the divine message of God. And the women were obedient. For they made their way to find the disciples. As they were making their way, they bumped into Jesus. They didn't recognize him until he gave them a kind greeting. They recognized his voice. And immediately they fell down and clasped his feet and they worshipped him. This is Matthew's way of saying that the only proper place for the people of God is a posture of worship. Worship seems to bookend this first gospel. You may recall that in Matthew chapter 2, it's the Magi who come from the east bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When they go into the house where the Christ child was, they bowed down and they worshipped him. Here at the very end of the gospel, it's Matthew chapter 28, and these women are running from the tomb. They bump into Jesus, and immediately they fall down, and they worship him. So whether he is the Christ child or the resurrected Christ, he is the only one worthy of our worship and praise. The only proper place for the people of God is in a posture of worship before the Lord. Now, not everybody was excited about the empty tomb. When the soldiers regained their faculties, they made their way back into the city. They found the chief priest, and they said, you're not going to believe what just happened. Can you imagine their retelling of the story? We were standing there just like Caesar had told us to do, just like Pontius Pilate had commanded us to do. And all of a sudden, there was a winged creature from the heavens that came down. It was so loud. It was so forceful. And that person, that angel, that messenger came and touched the stone, and it automatically rolled away. And the chief priest said, enough is enough. We can't perpetuate that story. So they devised a plan to bribe the soldiers. They said, if anybody asks you what happened, you tell them. The disciples came and stole the body away. The soldier said, if, they, if this gets back to Pontius Pilate, it will cost our life. Not just our jobs, but our very existence. And the religious ruler said, don't you worry about the governor. We'll take care of him. You just stick with the story. And Matthew says that they took the large sum of money. They perpetuated the lie. And even to this day, there are many people who believe the testimony of the Roman soldiers. You know, it was Mark Twain who said that a lie can make its way around the world twice before truth can lace up her boots. Because people love a lie. People love to believe a lie. A good lie has legs. A good lie is able to quickly go around before truth can even lace up her boots and follow around and put out the fire. And that's exactly what happens here. Not everybody believes because it's so far-fetched that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And so the Roman soldiers perpetuated the lie that the disciples of Christ had come and stolen his body. But Jesus met with his disciples on the mountain in Galilee. And when they saw him, they fell down and worshiped. But some of them doubted. I don't blame them, and neither should you. After all, this is astounding. 
I know the disciples have been with Jesus for three years, and I know they'd heard him preach. I know they had seen miraculous signs and wonders. I realized that Jesus had said repeatedly, I will go to Jerusalem. I must be handed over to the chief priests and the rulers. I'll be executed, crucified, and on the third day, I'll be raised back to life. I know, but still, it's an amazing story. And some of the disciples worshiped at a distance. They, they just had to see it to believe it. And Jesus still gave them the same invitation he gives you and me, come and see. Oh, this morning, church, I just want you to come and see. I want you to come and see that the tomb is empty. I want you to come and see that he who knew no sin became sin for us. I want you to come and see that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to come and see that salvation is given under no other name than the name of Jesus the Christ. I want you to come and see the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. I want you just to come and see that the tomb is empty. For when you come and see that the tomb is empty, you are propelled to go and tell. Jesus gave a short sermon. I've always been told there's no such thing as a bad short sermon. And Jesus gave his last sermon, which was probably his shortest sermon, recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. Yet this short sermon gives three implications of an empty tomb. First, the empty tomb proves that Jesus has all authority. Did you see what he said in verse 18? He said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The empty tomb proves that Jesus has all authority. There are some who believe the word authority to mean power, and certainly the implication is there. But a person can have power but no authority. Jesus has both power and authority. If a person can bench press 475 pounds, he has power. But if a police officer is directing traffic, he can stop an oncoming 18-wheeler tractor trailer just by lifting his hands. That's authority. Jesus has power and he has authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's think about that statement just a little bit deeper. For Jesus to say that all authority is his is to say that he has authority over life and death. He has authority over every angel, every demon, even the devil himself. He has authority over sickness and sadness. He has authority over the common cold and he has authority over every form of cancer. He has authority over every broken bone and every broken heart. He has authority over every lightning bolt, every thunderstorm, every tsunami, every hurricane, every tornado. He has authority over every bird of the sky, every beast of the field, every fish that swims. He has authority over every redwood tree that reaches to the heavens and every dandelion that rises up from the field. He has all authority. He has authority at the molecular structure, for he has authority over every proton, every neutron, every electron. He has 
authority over everything that is visible and everything that is invisible. He has authority over every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every mom, every dad, every child. He has authority over every marriage. He has authority over every family. He has authority over every subdivision. He has authority over every neighborhood. He has authority over every church. He has authority over all things. This Jesus has all authority. He has authority over every king, over every queen, over every parliament, over every dictator. He has authority over every president, over every Congress, over every super Supreme Court decision. He has authority over all things. He has authority over every Christian, every Muslim, every Jew, every Hindu, every atheist, every agnostic. He has authority over all things. This Jesus has all authority. The Apostle Paul said it this way, that everything is under the feet of Jesus. For everything to be under his feet is to imply that he has all authority. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Apostle Paul is not a universalist. He is not saying all dogs go to heaven. What he is saying is that everybody will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Either you will do it here out of compassion or you'll do it there out of compulsion, but regardless, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine when a person who refuses to acknowledge Christ on earth dies and then goes to meet his maker? He stands in front of God with as much arrogance as he had on planet earth. And this one stands before the Lord, and all of a sudden, his knees buckle. All of a sudden, he doesn't know what just happened. What's going on? And his knees has to bow. And out of his mouth, he declares, Jesus is Lord. And he thinks to himself, where did that come from? I don't believe that. I don't trust that. But yet Jesus walked in because Jesus has all authority so that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, either out of compassion or compulsion. Every knee will testify. Every voice will give credence that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because the empty tomb proves that Jesus has all authority. I know there are people who say, but I don't believe in him. Well, that doesn't diminish his authority. He's not in a popularity contest because he's king of kings and lord of lords. The empty tomb proves that Jesus has all authority. But secondly, the second implication is that the empty tomb provides purpose in our living. The empty tomb provides purpose in our living. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, traditionally, we call that the Great Commission. It's not a suggestion of the Savior. It's not something for us just to contemplate as if it's an option. No, this is the Great Commission of Christ. Because the tomb is empty, for those of us who believe, we have come and we have seen. And in response to that, we go and tell. The Great Commission is arranged 
with one imperative. In the Greek language, there's one command. It is bracketed by about three participles. The participle just tells us how we fulfill the command. The command is make disciples. The participles are going, baptizing, teaching. The way you and I make disciples is that we make disciples on the go. As we are going, as we're going to work, as we're going to school, as we're going to the marketplace, as we're going to the grocery store, as we're going to the gas station, as we're going to the travel team baseball and the travel team softball, as we're going to the athletic events, as we're going on vacation, as we're going, as we're going, as we're going, we are making disciples. Disciples are made on the go. As we're going, we're making disciples. And what are we doing? We are introducing people to Jesus. If life is a party, all we do is introduce our best friend Jesus to everybody at the party. Have you met my best friend? Have you met my good friend? His name is Jesus. Have you met my resurrected friend? There's only one like him. He's one of a kind. His name is Jesus. As we go, we present the gospel. We present it verbally. We present it visually. How we live, what we say, the things we do, the things we don't do. We are communicating the gospel to a watching world. And that introduction of Jesus finds its fulfillment when that person is not bashful about Christ, but very bold about Christ and follows in believer's baptism. Because baptism is the profession of faith. To say to a watching world, I'm identified with Jesus, for I've been buried with Christ and I've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. But you and I are not in the business of making decisions. We're in the business of making disciples. So Jesus says, not only is there going and baptizing, but there's also teaching. We are to teach what we have been taught We are to give to others what God has given unto us through his word and through his instruction. We must teach. We do not just baptize someone and then leave them floundering in the water as if to say, sink or swim in this thing called faith. No, we've got to teach them. Now, I want to balance this because I want to be sincere about this. I've got to tell you that the person who's most responsible for your spiritual walk with God is the individual that's seated between the person on your left and on your right. That's right, it's you. You can be as close to God as you want to be. You can walk as close to Jesus as you want to. You're the one who's most responsible for your spiritual walk with God. But even with that said, we have a responsibility to each other because we are our brothers and sisters keepers. So we are to teach. We're to teach our children. We teach our grandchildren what it is to be a faith follower. We we teach them. I've been told by not many parents, but more than one parent, I don't want to impose my faith on my children. I just kind of want them to kind of come to this on their own. And with all the love I can muster, can I please tell you that is the stupidest thing you could ever say? Because that would be like me saying, you know what, I have some beliefs about kitchen appliances. But I'm not going to apply that. I'm not going to force that on my children. I don't think it's a good idea for my children to put their hands in a blender and turn it on. But, but that's just my belief. I mean, they're going to come to that conclusion on their own. Now, how stupid is that? 
No, listen, if you know Jesus, if you know the path of everlasting life, then you have the glorious opportunity to teach and to train your children and your grandchildren about the good news gospel of our Lord. So don't abdicate your responsibility as mom and dad. So as we go and as we baptize and as we teach, we're making disciples. Now, what is a disciple? In order to make one, you got to be one. So what's a disciple? John MacArthur said a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Jesus. I like that. A lifelong believing learner of Jesus. Lifelong. Not just for a season. You're not just a sparkler that starts out hot and then fizzles after a couple of years. You're a lifelong believer. It's not that you never have doubts or that you never have questions, but you're always a believer. You take God at his word. You go to him with all your doubts and concerns. You're a lifelong believing learner because none of us have arrived. All of us have something to learn. All of us could be better followers of Christ tomorrow than we are today. So John MacArthur is exactly right, that a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. I also like what uh, Warren Wiersbe says. He says a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. In the first centuries, in the days of antiquity, and ever, whenever a person wanted to learn a trade, they didn't have very many trade schools, but you could go to a master craftsman, and you could study under that person. And Warren Wiersbe says that's what it is to be a disciple, because you go to the master, and you learn by observation. So you observe Jesus, and you see what he values, and you see what he loves. You see what he likes. You see what he hates. You see what he accepts. You see what he rejects. And you begin, in the words of Warren Wiersbe, to mimic the master. You're an apprentice of Jesus. You learn from the master. You mimic him. You do what you see him doing. You say what you hear him saying. And that's what it is to be a disciple. My friends, I... I, I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be negative on Easter Sunday, but can I just be honest? I don't know how well we're doing at this thing called disciple making. We've got seven billion people on the planet today. The most generous estimates say that a third of those claim some type of Christianity. So even if that number is right, and, and many of us could doubt the truthfulness of that number but even if that number is right that's 2.5 billion Christians 4.5 billion people who identify themselves as something other than a Christ follower are we doing a good job at making disciples a couple years ago I heard a story of a professor at Florida Atlantic University who asked his uh, students to get out a piece of paper and write Jesus on the name of that piece of paper, put the piece of paper on the ground, get up from their chair, and stomp on the name of Jesus. The professor had a class of several hundred, and every college student in the class stood up and stomped on the name of Jesus except one. Every person in the class stood up and stomped on the name of Jesus. Well, if everybody else is doing it, I'll do it too. And so they just stomped on Jesus, except for that one person. And the professor came to that one person and said, boy, you better stomp. Or he said it in so many words. Boy, you better stomp. And the, and the young man said, I can't do it. And it expelled him from the class. One out of hundreds in that college class who refused to stomp on the name of Jesus. I don't know if we're doing a great job in making disciples. Later this summer, 
non-highly trained, well-educated justices called the Supreme Court of the United States of America will hear cases about whether or not they will legalize gay marriage in all 50 states across our land. Now I realize that it'll be described as a legal issue. All of us realize it's not a legal issue. In our culture, it's a political issue. But let me say this morning, it's neither a legal issue nor a political issue. It's a theological issue. Because God will be on trial. God will be on trial in the United States of America to see whether or not God has the mental faculty to be able to form and understand what marriage ought to be. Even though in his word, he clearly defines marriage as a man and a woman for life. This is by God's design. He sets up the building blocks of society. He sets up the parameters. And yet later this summer, our country, our culture is going to put God on the witness stand and see if he knows what he's talking about. Oh, my friends, I wonder, how are we doing? on making disciples. I think what's happened is exactly what Steve Brown said. Steve Brown said the church has become a place where a nice, pleasant, bland person stands in front of other nice, pleasant, bland people, urging them to be nicer, more pleasant, and more bland. That's what the church has become in our day and time. But Steve Brown says, Jesus did not die to create nice, pleasant, bland people. Jesus died on the cross, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead so that sinners who are dead in their sin can be alive in Christ Jesus. And in that joy and exuberance, they can't keep their mouth shut. They can't keep quiet about Jesus. They make much of Jesus, and they boldly go out and make disciples of every nation tribe and tongue that people will go out and say look here comes a Jesus guy and here comes a Jesus gal oh my friend I long for the day when somebody mistakes me for Jesus they say oh I thought you were Jesus you're just a pastor that's all right you just call me who my master is because I just want to mimic and imitate the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ You see, the empty tomb proves that Jesus has all authority. The empty tomb provides purpose in our living because we exist to make disciples of all people. But the third implication is this, that the empty tomb promises the abiding presence of Christ. The very last line of verse 20, and surely I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. This is Jesus' way of saying, um, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not abandon you, but I will accompany you every step of the way. Once again, this is Matthew's marvelous, masterful way of putting the presence of Christ as bookends around his gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, he quotes the prophet Isaiah who says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here in chapter 28, Jesus says, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So there's never a place that you go where Jesus is not. 
He is with you in every problem. He's with you in every predicament. He's with you in every prognosis. He's with you in every place. He's with you in all pain. He is with you in all pleasure. He is with you in all success as well as all setbacks. He is with you in all things. You can go with power. You can go with confidence. You can go with some semblance of authority because you know you do not go at it alone because Christ is with you. One of the great promises of all the Bible is I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus, because of the empty tomb, promises the abiding presence of Christ in our life. This morning, I came to tell you that the tomb is empty. This morning, I came to invite you to come and see. And if you come and see, and if you believe, then you will go and tell. Because the empty grave carries some implications. That Jesus has all authority. That now you have purpose in your living. And you have the promise that Christ will be with you. You and I cannot make too much of the resurrection. I I know that for 2,000 years they've been trying to find the bones of Jesus. Let me let you know a little secret. They ain't never going to find the bones of Jesus. You can't find the bones of somebody who's not there. Jesus is alive. Pilate, Pilate could not stop him. The religious rulers could not silence him. The devil could not defeat him and death could not keep him. Jesus is alive. I came this morning to tell you that if it wasn't true, yes, it would be a hoax. But I know it's true. I believe it's true. I know it's true. Why? Because I serve a risen Savior. And he's in the world today. And I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Jesus is alive today. Do you suppose it's going to make any difference? What do you mean? Easter. Will Easter make any difference for all these people? Or will life tomorrow be the same as it was yesterday. Oh, my friends, because of the empty tomb, life tomorrow cannot be the same. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, if there is somebody listening to my voice and they came in just because somebody made them come, they came because calendar said it was Easter and yet Lord they have never trusted you as Savior they've never believed in the empty tomb they've been more apt to believe the lie of the Roman soldiers oh Lord but today by your power you have confronted them with the gospel of truth Lord I pray that today they'll come to a saving knowledge of you please Lord open eyes and open hearts 
If that person is here who has never trusted you as Savior, I pray that today, in this very moment, while the song is being sung, that person will come forward, take me by the hand, and say, Pastor, I need that Jesus. Lord, if there's somebody here who has a burden that is far too heavy for them to carry, may they know that the altar's open for them to come and find help in their time of need. If there's somebody here who needs a faith family, oh Lord, I pray that they will come and join this church today. As you lead, we will obey. In Jesus' name, amen.